You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome and thank you for joining us today for our first Lozano Smith podcast of 2022. My name is Sloan Simmons. I will be your host today. I'm a Lozano Smith partner out of the Sacramento office and one of the firm's co-practice group leaders in litigation. I'm very lucky to be joined today by Arnie Sandberg, a 30-year practitioner, an attorney here for Lozano Smith dating back to 2007. Um, our expert when it comes to construction, litigation, uh, and advice. And Arnie, we're here today on a subject that's near and dear to your heart, uh, but also one that uh, I think, as you've explained to me, there's some new developments here that are that are driving uh, our discussion. And we're going to be talking about modular buildings and how to procure them. Um, so first, Arnie, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I'm perhaps the best or the worst uh, host for this in that um, I'll admit a great degree of naivety when it comes to this subject. Um, so I may ask questions that are completely off the ranch, and hopefully you'll keep us on track. But kind of just to start us off, Arnie, what are modular buildings? Well, basically, you have a typical construction of a building that's done on site. You, you have a foundation and you build up the framing and, uh, and so on on site. But modular buildings are, are pieces of the building or sometimes entire buildings that are built off site in a factory. Um, these modular firms use their proprietary designs to cost effectively construct pieces of the modular building in their factory. Then they ship it to the site. There's two types of buildings. One is modular buildings, I should say. There's modular component buildings where in the factory they construct basically walls and roofs sections where they, uh, they're flat pieces. They are shipped flat on a truck to the site and then put together on the foundation at the, at the site. Um, the other is what you would call portables, modular portables. And those are what people in the, in the industry call volumetric. They're three-dimensional. So it's basically a f perhaps a floor, but also walls and a roof all in one piece. And sometimes you've seen these on trucks going down the freeway. These buildings, uh, you take maybe two of them, put them together and voila, you have a building. And usually these are single classroom buildings. I mean, those are the ones, Arnie, that right come to mind for me as a, as a kid who was in elementary and uh, junior high school in the late 80s, early 90s. It was kind of the, the advent of we're not building brick and mortar. We're going to add classrooms and they're going to be portable. So that's what comes to mind to me most immediately. Is Does that make up what what portion of this area do, do those type of, you know, the extra classroom, rectangular, portable, uh, modular make up this? Or is that just now a sliver of all that's being done in this area? Uh I'm not sure, but I would guess more than half of it would be the modular portables as opposed to modular components. You see it a lot on construction sites, not just for permanent buildings, but also temporary. For example, a client had a major remodel, uh, modernization of a middle school near us here. Uh, I'm in the Walnut Creek office. And 
this is very typical. In order to modernize a classroom building, you've got to move the kids out of it. And you would set up a bunch of portables, temporary portables. Students are housed in there for maybe a year. And then the new building uh, or the classroom building is either renovated or maybe it's raised and replaced with a new classroom building. That makes sense. And I feel like I've, I've heard about that, too. And I, I, I think it, this will ultimately bleed into uh, where you're going to take us in this discussion. But I am familiar with districts who, for, for a period of time, needed them. And then um, the purveyor of those, by way of whatever contractual documentation they had, was, was supposed to come back and get them at some point. And I'm not certain if that's the, the norm, but perhaps that's, that's more of what you're going to get into as we, as we talk about the issues that relate to modular buildings. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and especially, I, we touched a little bit on a very important issue. Are they permanent or are they temporary? Um, th that's going to play into this issue about how you procure modular buildings because that's a, a very important distinction. Are they going uh, to be permanent uh, in terms of not being relocatable or are they going to be temporary? Clearly in the case that I mentioned where you have portables to temporarily house students, those are temporary. But what about school districts that t use a similar portable, a two, two pieces put together and boom, you have a classroom. What about one of those that is installed permanently? Um, does that qualify as a relocatable building or not? And it's a very important distinction that we'll get to in a little bit. There's an attorney general opinion talking about modular component buildings, and it treats those modular components as always being permanent. In fact, I've never, I personally have never heard of modular components that are installed in a temporary building. Uh, modular components are pieces of more of larger, more permanent buildings. Um, Ernie, on, on that concept, what's it, give me an example of, of the, the largest modular component building that a, uh, a district might, might build. I mean, does, does that include as large as like a gymnasium? It can be gymnasiums, multi-purpose rooms, can have modular pieces, two-story classrooms, uh, classroom buildings. So it's basically everything that goes beyond the classic rectangular uh, one-door portable modular that, that you, you see when you're driving by schools all the time. Yeah, most everything could use, if the architect chooses to do so, modular components. Interesting. I assume that's also a, a business which over the decades and, and the way in which things get put together and energy efficiencies and all these things that I, I assume that's become more and more frequently used by school districts is that that modular component alternative or is that am I off off the mark on that? No, you are very close. I mean, the, the main thing is cost efficiency. I mean, these modular firms can provide these modular components or modular buildings at a competitive, if not cheaper, price. Um, and that is why a lot of school districts uh, like to use them. They, you know, they like to save money. It's not always the case. Sometimes it's cheaper to just construct the building on the site. Um, but, you know, every project's different. You've got to analyze it. But that is probably the leading factor in terms of uh, th their common use. 
Arnie, one more kind of uh, question, just again, as I'm filling the gaps for myself, it is when it comes to selecting for the, the cost efficiencies, as you described, a modular component building, does that really come down to, do you have the space that that, that building would fit into as if we were back in the 20s ordering from the Sears catalog kind of a home? That, that, are there particular plans that fit particular spaces or can you request a uniquely designed modular building through the through the modular component option. Does that question make sense? Yeah, every company, every modular firm has their own menu of items. Got it. And they're all different. Some companies only make modular components, some only modular portables, some both perhaps. Um, and within that framework, they've got options. You know, so, for example, a company that makes modular portables, they probably have different sizes, uh, different options in terms of windows, um, roofing, facilities within the room, and so on. So, with, with that in mind, um, as we think about the, the school districts that we represent and where this, this issue comes up, can basic competitive bidding be used for modular buildings? It's difficult, and that's what leads to this, uh, this issue of how do you procure them, because typical competitive bidding, the architect completes the design, and then you go out to bid, you get the low bidder, and you award the contract. Well, when you're hiring a modular firm, every modular firm is different. They all have their own proprietary designs. So while their buildings may be similar, they aren't exactly the same, and so you can't have an architect prepare a design that's complete. And there's a statute in the Ed Code that requires a complete design before you can award the contract. Um, but and there is an exception in there for relocatable buildings uh, if they qualify as relocatable. But if, if you're putting in a building that's not relocatable, then you're not able to really bring in modular components through basic competitive bidding. And that's how, and that then raises the question, well, how do you do it? What's the best way to pick a modular firm and then enter a contract with that firm. So walk us through that that model for, for best practices on, on procuring one. Well, there's various delivery methods out there. There's competitive bidding, which you mentioned. There's design build. There's lease lease back. All of these are valid delivery methods and they apply and can be used perhaps with some tweaks for modular components or modular portables. Um, what we found in working with our clients is one of the best delivery methods that's suited for this type of work is design build, because that's basically what you're doing. You are hiring a firm to complete the design. You're not completing the design and then finding a company to construct that exact design. Design build has to be a project over a million dollars, but generally speaking, you issue an RFP and you include in there your design parameters, like you want a building of a certain size. Maybe you want three portable buildings of you know a thousand square feet each or whatever, and a few other parameters that you want to have in the buildings. Then the different modular firms will submit their proposals as to how they will meet those requirements of the district. And 
you pick the one that you like. And the beauty of design build is that there's a lot of flexibility in the school district's ability to pick the contractor. Unlike lease, leaseback or competitive bidding, where there's scoring or you go by the price and whoever ends up with the best price or the best score, you have to award it. You don't have that sort of restriction with design build. You have a lot of flexibility. You pick the company you like, and then they go ahead and final, you enter the contract, and then they go ahead and finalize the design, get DSA approval, and then construct, start constructing it in their factory. Arnie, let me stop you there, because I think that, for me, kind of fills the gaps as a great explanation of how the design build option for, for those things over a million works. You've just hit on it a little bit, but step back for those of us less experienced in this subject area and just kind of give the 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 411 on how a general competitive bidding process would work juxtaposed of design bill and then I'd ask you to then compare that to the lease leaseback option okay well basic competitive bidding is price only i mean you you complete the design you send it out you publish the documents the plans the specs everything else and then the interested contractors submit their bid prices and you have to award it to the lowest responsive and responsible bidder. Um, sometimes the low bidder may get knocked out because they didn't fill out forms correctly, but for the most part, the lowest price is the contractor that is going to get the work. In, in that model, Arnie, do, is that simply the builder bidding out the project we've already designed with an architect? And if so, What's the process for bringing that architect on in the first instance? Instance is it also an RFP or or and a competitive bidding, or is that something we can do outside of competitive bidding? For the architect, you know, long before you go out to bid for the contractor, for the architect, uh, that's an RFP process. And again, similar to design build, you have a lot of flexibility in who you pick, but. You know, they, you have an RFP, there's a lot of information the architects that are interested have to submit, and then you evaluate them, maybe interview them, and then, um, and then pick one. And then the architect moves forward with the design, obtains DSA approval of the complete design, and then that is what is the, used as the basis for competitive bidding. And that's a, that's a typical project. And, and, that, and then our, the third bucket of lease, leaseback. Or is that not fit as a direct comparator to, to the design build and competitive bidding options? No, it is. It's a valid alternative. And, and, and let's keep in mind also that the default under California law is you must competitively bid all construction projects. Unless you find an exception somewhere, and there are exceptions, you must competitively bid construction work. So design build, which we already talked about, is a valid exception if it's over a million dollars and you meet a couple of other requirements. Lease leaseback is another exception. And lease leaseback has undergone some changes um, just about five years ago in response to the 2015 Davis case. It used to be lease leaseback was very flexible, similar to design build. That is no longer the case. The legislature, because of the 2015 Davis case, enacted uh, new laws that went into effect January, 2017 and those laws now require the owner to award the lease leaseback contract to the contractor that earns the most points. So you don't, you go through a scoring process, you add up the points, whichever contractor has the most points, 
they're the ones that must get the contract, unless you choose not to award at all. But if you're going to award it, it must go to the contractor that earned the most points. Now, lease leaseback is a different system where the owner leases the property to the contractor for a dollar a year, and then the contractor leases it back to the owner. And under that sublease back to the owner, there are payment terms where the owner makes payments to the contractor on the sublease, which compensate the contractor for the construction of the project. And then when the construction's done, the lease and the sublease terminate and the ownership of that project is now uh, the district's. Now, I, I not even, you know, not participating as a as an active Lozano Smith attorney in this area. I do remember a lot of a lot of noise when the Davis case came out. And I realized that was a, a, a huge deal at the time. You having just described that lease leaseback process. What are what are the rationales and benefits to that approach? Well, the advantage is that when you are scoring the proposals, I mentioned the scoring process. In addition to the price, you're able to take into account qualifications. When you're competitive bidding, it's only the price. It doesn't, you know, there's a very low bar, a low threshold for the contractors to jump over to qualify. And then once they do that, whatever your contractor has the lowest price, that's the one, if you're going to award it, that's the one to whom you must award it. For lease leaseback, it's price and qualifications. So 50% of the points that a contractor's proposal could earn come from the price, 50% or so come from qualifications. And that at least gives the owner some assurances that they're not awarding the contract just to some fly-by-night contractor who may not be that good. Because if they need to, to earn the most points, They've got to submit a good price and have good qualifications, good experience, et cetera. Arnie, with the, that, that scoring system under the 2017 legislation, is that a set scoring system or is that one that has to include certain components, but the district's able to establish what's going to be accounted for in the scoring? The district has a lot of flexibility in setting up the scoring system. There's some base questions that you must include, but you can also include a lot of other stuff. And, and then you come up with the point allocations too. You decide what's important to you. The key is that whatever the rating system is, it has to be decided in advance. And you have to let the contractors know in advance what the scoring system is. And then the proposals are submitted and you score them based on that system. So it's still fair and objective. The contractors, everyone is on the same page. They all know how the best proposal will be determined. And uh, once they're submitted, then you don't have, then, then your hands are tied. Then you don't have much flexibility. You have to score them based on the system you set up. And whoever earns the most points, if you're going to award the contract, that's the entity that will get the award. Now, Arnie, to the extent you have found over time design build to be a preferred option, what what would you say when it comes to this area of modular buildings are the are the, some of the factors that you would that would make you lean design build as opposed to lease leaseback? Well, lease leaseback does work for modular buildings, and there are a lot of districts that have used lease leaseback. Uh, 
Uh, there's also two types of lease leaseback under the new statute. There's lease leaseback lump sum and a lease leaseback fee percentage. And you'd use the lease lease. You could use either one, really. And we don't really need to go into all the details there. But um, design build may be a bit more preferable than lease leaseback just because you have the flexibility of picking whoever you want. I mean, you, you don't have this scoring system that ties your hands. And so you can receive the proposals for design build and it's still in your hands, in the school district's hands as to uh, which one they're more comfortable with, which one they like the design of the portable of one compared to the other. So this is, it, it, Arnie, this is really helpful for me. I mean, I, I, maybe you and I should have had this talk a long time ago. This is, <laughs> you're connecting a lot of dots that, that um, just as a matter of school district, business office parlance and stuff, you hear it all the time, no matter what practice area you're in. So um, thank you for those explanations. I think what that brings us around to, which is another term I hear bantered about quite frequently by those of you in the facilities and business practice is piggybacking. So ah, yes. how does that how does that interact with this subject? Well, we've covered the basic delivery methods: uh, competitive bidding, design build, lease lease back. They all work. Competitive bidding does work if you use a performance spec. We didn't get into that, but you know, in addition to design build and lease lease back, you can use competitive bidding if you have a performance spec, which basically means. You have some basic parameters of what you need out of your portable building, and then bids can be submitted in line with that. So there are options there. Then there's also piggybacking. And this has become a big issue over the last six months, seven months, because back in July of 2021, the OPSC sent an email out to... So let me stop you there, just so everyone knows, and I should have done this earlier. You've been talking about, first, DSA, which is... Uh, that's the Division of State Architect. All right. And now OPSC, what is that agency? The Office of the Public School Construction. Okay. Well, both, both state agencies that are directly involved with all school school right. construction projects. And the OPSC is the uh, arm of the SAB, the State Allocation Board. Uh, and we'll mention the State Allocation Board here in a minute. So, so regarding piggybacking, yeah, it, it became a big issue, a bigger issue um, in July of 2021. But before we get to that email, let me back up a bit and just talk about what is piggybacking. There is a statute, Public Contract Code Section 20118, which allows a district to purchase or lease personal property, and that's the phrase from the statute, personal property, on the, quote, same terms, end quote, as another contract that the vendor has with another public agency. So if a school district uh, wants to buy something like pencils, uh, using as an example, wants to buy 10,000 pencils from a particular vendor and the vendor has a contract with another public agency, a valid contract, um, which means competitively bid, et cetera, um, for pencils at a certain price, then the school district can contract with that vendor and purchase the pencils for the same price, same terms, 
without going to competitive bidding. Because normally, even when purchasing personal property, a school district has to use competitive bidding. That's, like I said, that's the default rule for uh, purchasing goods or services. But piggybacking is an exception for personal property when there's a contract, when the vendor has a contract with another public agency. Uh, it's just that the when the school district buys that personal property in a piggyback contract, it's got to be the same terms as that other contract. The theory is that because that other contract was competitively bid or otherwise legal, it's a good price and therefore it's fine if a school district piggybacks on that good price and purchases the same things. So explain to me, Arnie, in that situation, because on one hand, what pops to mind for me is, you know, you don't have to go through that whole process again. Do we find, if we use your example of pencils, the Acme pencil purveyors, they've got a contract of District A. Is it a practice by by vendors like that to to approach other districts to say, hey, by the way, we've got this contract of District A. Um, you, you guys interested in piggybacking as District B? Is, does that happen? Yes, absolutely. When a when a vendor has a contract, they use it as part of their sales pitch when they go to other school districts, uh, and they say, "Look, under Section two zero one one eight, you don't need to competitively bid this stuff because we already have a contract that was valid and competitively bid. So, just sign a contract straight with us, and assuming that." all of the requirements of section 20118 are checked off, you know, that it's personal property, that it's the same terms, et cetera, et cetera, then that's a valid way of purchasing personal property. And Acme Pencil Purveyors has to agree and willingly join into that contract, right? It's not as if- Yes, I, you, can't, you can't force it. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, because yeah. that's the other if, thing if, that floated in my mind. You might have, as the purveyor, um, made a great contract as of 2020, but now in 2021, there's no pencils anywhere, and you want a you want a totally different contract from that. Okay, so that that makes right. sense. Right, perfect sense. Exactly. If the price goes up, then that vendor will not be shopping around that piggyback contract because it's no longer a good deal. He won't make money at that price. That's that's definitely the case in this day and age of increasing uh, of inflation and uh, increased costs. Right. So how does the concept of personal property interact with mod modulars? Well, that, that's, uh, that's the rub. Um, th that is the big issue. There was an attorney general's opinion addressing this point uh, back in 2006. And that, that was the genesis of this whole issue. So, so let me start there. This attorney general opinion which was actually requested by OPSC back then, concluded that for modular component buildings, for modular components that are being installed on a permanent foundation, that's not personal property. And therefore, the piggybacking statute could not be used. I mean, the um, attorney general concluded, let's see, quote, they would result in permanent school buildings of varying styles and that they involved permanent foundations. And that was the big focus of the attorney general's opinion. And it distinguished portables. In a footnote, the attorney general clearly said, this opinion does not address portables. It doesn't say yes or no for portables. It just says we're not addressing portables here. 
So for modular components, there's this attorney general opinion in 2006. And that was in January of 2006. A month later, the SAB adopted that attorney general opinion and said, yes, we agree. We adopt this opinion because the, after all, the OPSC asked for that opinion, asked the attorney general's office for that opinion. And that's what they got. So, the so what, just if I'm missing it, maybe it's obvious and maybe it doesn't matter. Would there, what would the motivation or interest of SAB or OPSC to have that conclusion reached? What would, be, what would their interest be in that? I think just clarity, because okay. there were okay. lots of questions being raised by school districts, by the modular firms. You know, how do we go about and do this? Because the law is not clear. And to this day, the law is still not, the statutes are still a bit of a hodgepodge and not entirely clear. It would be very nice if the legislature stepped in and somehow cleared this up, but we're stuck with the statutes that we've got. And in fact, there was um, an SAB report in 2004 where they were addressing a lot of these issues uh, and the SAB's legal counsel got involved and so on. And that may have been the genesis that led to OPSC asking the attorney general for its opinion January 2006, the opinion is issued, and the SAB in February adopted that opinion and said, instruct all school districts across the state that when using modular components on a permanent foundation, you must use competitive bidding. In other words, you can't use piggybacking. And I assume both the both districts and modular companies both would have rather have heard a different conclusion by the AG? It didn't, well, we'll get to it maybe a little bit later, but like I okay. said, it didn't address portables, modular portables specifically. Some of the reasoning in the AG report may apply to them, which we'll get to in a minute, but for the most part, it really specifically addressed modular components on permanent foundations. Understood. So you end up with the SAB adopting this in 2006. That's the official position now for OPSC and the SAB and for use of state funds. But over the years, questions arose. There were still people never heard anything from OPSC. We have some clients that went ahead and constructed modular component buildings on permanent foundations. Either they weren't aware of it or they knew and just took the risk because OPSC had been quiet about it. In fact, we've, on behalf of clients, we tried to call OPSC several times to say, hey, what's your position? Is it still your position, what you said in 2006? And they were, at first they talked to us a little bit, then eventually they realized this is, I think they realized this is a problem and we couldn't get an answer out of them. And so finally, that brings us to July of last year, July, 2021, when the OPSC doubled down on the 2006 decision by the SAB. They reiterated that for modular component buildings, com uh, piggybacking cannot be used and you must use competitive bidding or some other exception to competitive bidding. And that led to quite an uproar, a bit of a brouhaha because- Because what, districts had, of, had gone back to using piggybacking for modular components during that time span? Yeah, during that 15 years, a lot of districts had been using it, especially recently, which is probably why OPSC issued the clarification. They realized that a lot of school districts 
were using piggybacking for modular components. And they went back and reiterated their decision from 15 years earlier. And that surprised a lot of people. And I know cash has come out uh, with some opinions that it should not apply. Uh, that should not be the rule. But for whatever for whatever purposes, that is the rule from OPSC, and it's based on an attorney general opinion. So, and there was a not so subtle reminder in the email back last July that if districts ignore this, then they would risk their funding, their state so funding. What, so a couple of things there, Arnie. Let's say I, during that interim period, uh, let's pick a year, 2015, built a modular component building using the a piggybacking approach, does that get undone or is that water under the bridge at this point? I think it's pretty much water under the bridge, um, especially if OPSC did provide funding for it, then right. that funding. So they were, that's interesting, which I wasn't, I wasn't putting two, two and two together. OPSC was, despite re-establishing the 06 view now have been permitting funding during the interim that would suggest otherwise? It appears that way. Um, we have some clients that have done those projects. We didn't find out about it till afterwards. You know, we would have advised them about the risk of it if we had known right. in advance. But uh, I, I'm thinking of one client in particular where they told us afterward that they um, had done this and they kind of went, oops. But yep. to the extent there was state funding, they received it. So you may be addressing this, and I might be missing it, but so that's that original 06 opinion was driving on modular components on a permanent foundation. Where does that leave us with portables on a permanent versus temporary foundation? And I think that's the big debate right now. Um, the People may not like the OPSC uh, email back in July, but it is what it is. And that, that, but what do you do about these other situations when you have portables on a permanent foundation or modular portables on a temporary foundation? And that gets back to the issue of permanent versus temporary that we talked at, uh, talked about at the beginning. We, it's true that the AG opinion specifically did not address portables. However, the reasoning of the AG decision is that a permanent building is not um, personal property. And that's really the problem. And when you're putting a modular portable on a permanent foundation, it's really not relocatable. If it's, if it's installed permanently, it, it, there's a chance that if you were challenged in court, the court may say, you know what, the reasoning of the AG opinion also applies here because this is permanent. It's not personal property because when things are affixed to real property, whether it's HVAC units or utility piping or whatever, when things are affixed to real property, even a toilet and a bathroom, it's now a fixture. And fixtures by definition are real property, not personal property. So when you have something permanently attached, there's a pretty good argument that the AG's reasoning will still apply and that competitive bidding would be required. In other words, it's not personal property, therefore you can't use piggybacking. 
Is there when 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 we talk about <clears throat> a fix to a, a permanent foundation, what's the degree? I mean, is the concept of ultimately moving that to a different location just as complicated as it would be, say, taking a traditional building that's been affixed to a foundation? It's just there must be a significant difference in the simplicity and moving those buildings when you when you're distinguishing between permanent versus temporary foundations. Right. And, and that's the big debate. I've been on some phone calls with other attorneys and there's been uh, discussion, you know, but no conclusion about, well, what is permanent? You know, I've even heard some people make the argument that, well, theoretically, every building is temporary because you can raise it or pick it up and move it. It may cost a lot, but you theoretically could. I don't think that that's necessarily a, a good way of analyzing this. I mean, the I think the keys are the, the, the rationale from the AG opinion. Also, the fact that the statutes talk about relocatable buildings. You know, in other words, can they be relocated? Um, and also, I think you need to focus on whether it, you know, how it is installed, because sometimes it might be installed with uh, its temporary nature in mind. In other words, it may be installed with the intent that, yeah, we are going to plan on moving this in maybe five years. We want the option of moving it. But sometimes these portables are installed so that you really don't have the option of moving it without seriously damaging the building. In other words, it's it, it's affixed to a permanent foundation. And where do you draw the line? That's unclear. There's no law on that. And so people can make arguments on both sides. And it's Arnie, if if I know I get the flexibility of piggybacking with a with a portable modular on a temporary foundation, why would I even consider a permanent foundation approach? I I don't know. I mean, I think um, uh, it really depends. I don't know. Uh, there may be reasons for districts to pick modular portables on a permanent foundation. Um, I mean, and the thing is, even if you have a modular portable on a temporary foundation, there's still a risk a judge might, if faced with the question, that a judge might rule, this is a building. Even if it's a temporary foundation and you can move it somewhere, it's still a building. And right now it's hooked up to utilities and it's not personal property. Even in that situation, there's potential a judge could rule. I think it's low. It's definitely lower than the other situations, but it's something to keep in mind. Before I, I ask you for some big picture takeaways on, on this issue, and in particular, the, 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 the issue on piggybacking that continues to be one of, of interest, w explain to me what are the most likely scenarios or the, the parties which are are likely to challenge, you know, to make the argument you just raised for purposes of a court. Are, are those uh, are those companies that would likely otherwise uh, perhaps bid through competitive bidding and have a shot at the contract if it weren't for piggybacking? Is that our most likely plaintiff in that scenario? Yes, contractors who are not getting contracts, they're getting squeezed out by other firms. They might raise a challenge. Uh, taxpayers may file an action to challenge the expenditure of public money if they think that it was done uh, 
in a fashion that's not compliant with the statute. Um, those are probably the two most likely sources. And, and again, these cases are not common, but it does happen. I mean, it happened with lease leaseback. That's what led to the Davis case seven years ago. There was, uh, lease leaseback was kind of the wild west back then and a lot right. of stuff was happening. And finally, a contractor sued saying this has got to stop because I'm getting excluded from all these contracts. I don't have a chance to get any of this work. And something similar may happen with piggybacking at some point. So what are, for our listeners, Arnie, uh, some of what you would say are the critical takeaways on this subject? I, I think the takeaways would be that we that there are lots of clearly legal delivery methods to incorporate modular buildings into your project. You've got design build, competitive bidding with a performance spec. You've got lease lease back lump sum, lease lease back with a fee, percentage fee. And, and those, those are all very good. Um, piggybacking when you have modular components on a permanent foundation is a big, big risk because of the clear statement from OPSC last July. When you start talking about modular portables, then there's some risk, but not as much. And it's something they should, you know, any school district should talk to their attorney about. Arnie, this has been a great conversation. Uh, it's one of the reasons I love doing these. You've taught me a ton today. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, you know, you're our best when it comes to cradle to grave on construction projects, advising and guiding districts through that process. And then if and when, but hopefully not, they end up in court. You, you've got all the chops and the expertise to, to help our clients in that area. And so I think this will be a great listen uh, for our folks uh, in the facilities and the business departments of our school districts. Very timely. Um, I think we both probably received happy news yesterday that Will Clark's number will be retired for the Giants um, this this summer. Um, if they play, if they play. Oh, don't we have? We'll leave that for our labor and employment attorneys. So there you uh, go, Arnie. Thanks for being here today. Really appreciate it. Uh, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to another Lozano Smith podcast. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today, as well as our other podcasts um, that we have covered in terms of a range of other topics. And uh, don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Thanks again, Arnie. Bye, everyone. You bet. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to everyone for listening. any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice we recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.